Heavenly Father, we thank you for the peace that we have in Jesus, for the joy that we have in Jesus, for the assurance, the security that we have in Jesus. <coughs> and Heavenly Father, I pray in particular for that person who's experiencing a conspicuous lack of peace and a conspicuous lack of joy. And their life is filled with uncertainty. Lord, I pray that your peace, your joy, your assurance would flood their hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that they would see that you've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness and the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus. That we can trust Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 14, we're going to begin in verse 27 where we left off. These are familiar words. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, and let us go from here. For those of you who have been following along in the 14th chapter, it has been wave after wave of blessing, wave after wave of promise. With less than a few days to live, Jesus assures the disciples that they're going to heaven in verses 1 through 6, that they can know the Father right now in verses 7 through 11, that they have a new privilege in prayer in verses 12 through 15, that a comforter, the Holy Spirit, is coming in verses 16 through 18, that we can experience and enjoy the Father's love in verses 19 through 24, and that Jesus is going to bequeath he is going to impart a special blessing, his special brand of peace. The peace of Jesus is different than the peace that the world has to offer. You know, the world speaks of peace, but even as it's speaking of peace, it's preparing for war. The world bases its peace on the presence or the absence of resources. The peace Jesus brings is based on relationships. You know, I have friends who've been telling me, the world is coming to an end. Now is the time to panic. Now is the time for guns, gold, and groceries. And I say, no, now is the time to walk in the peace of Jesus and the joy of Jesus and the security that's found in Christ. You see, Jesus is talking about a a special kind of peace. 
It's the peace of God. It's peace with God and peace. Think about it for just a moment. This is the kind of peace absent anxiety, the kind of peace that that garrisons itself around your heart. This is the kind of peace without fear. Jesus is speaking of the kind of peace where the sinner is no longer at war with his God. Jesus is speaking of the kind of peace where reconciliation becomes possible. The kind of peace where there's eternal life. The kind of peace that brings about salvation. The kind of peace that ensures forgiveness of all sin. That the stain is removed and fellowship with God is here. And security comes against all of life's changing circumstances. You see, I grew up in a peace in a world where peace was defined as that glorious moment where everybody stands around reloading. Okay, time out. Everybody, weapons, reload. That's the kind of world in which we live. Where modern poets sing, Death ain't nothing but a heartbeat away. I'm living life do or die. And what can I say? It's the kind of palpable presence where you're wondering whether or not you're going to live through the day. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, nothing can bring peace but yourself. But Emerson was wrong. Emerson was wrong. You don't have the ability to bring about personal peace. The world can't give you a peace. If it is a peace, it's temporary. Francois Fenelon said, There is never any peace for those who resist God. And isn't that the perfect description of the world in which we live? A world that stands in opposition to God. A world that resists God. That resists His love and resists His peace. And resists the offer of forgiveness. And so for the troubled heart and for the fearful heart, Jesus is going to offer a massive dose of peace. And a massive dose of joy. And a massive dose of assurance. Look at verse 27. The source of peace. The source of peace being the sufficiency of Jesus. Look again. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. Shalom. I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. The word translated peace is, is the Greek word Irene. And by the way, in the early church, the favorite names that, that uh, Christians would name their children were Irene. It's the word for peace. And charis, which is gift. But certainly when Jesus spoke the words, he, he mouths the word shalom. Now, you've got to understand something. In the ancient world, the word peace meant to bind or weave together. When the Hebrew would say shalom, 
or the Greek would say Irene, he's talking about or she is talking about the kind of peace that is extended from one person to another. The Hebrew word meant way more than the absence of trouble. It was an expression that meant to impart the highest good. It was a hope for the best of all inner world possibilities. It meant wholeness. It meant wellness. In a very broad sense, it meant financial prosperity. But it also meant spiritual prosperity. The idea being that all would be well with your soul. One Bible writer says to be right with God means to enjoy the peace of God. The world depends on personal ability, but the Christian depends on the spiritual adequacy of Christ. You see, the reality of peace in your life is in direct proportion of the ability of Jesus to bring about that peace. In, a, in the world, peace is something you hope for or work for. But to the Christian, peace is God's wonderful gift. Since peace is the gift of God, it isn't simply something that you wish for or work for. When I was going through <laughs> DIA, I, as you go down one escalator, I don't know if some of you have seen it, but there's a picture of the Dalai Lama at DIA. And on the picture, as you're going up the escalator, the caption reads, He doesn't just hope for peace, he's working for it. And I laughed. And I thought, you know what? We live in a world that desperately longs for peace. But as believers, God's peace is given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Shalom was also the word that was used for departure. Just like in Hawaii, you know, the, the expression aloha, it can mean goodbye or hello. The same is true of shalom. And in this context, it is a context of departure. It is a context of leaving. Jesus is leaving. Have you ever loved someone and your loved one said to you, hey, you know what, I'm leaving, but before I go, I want to give you something. I want to give you something so that when you have it with you, you'll be reminded of me. That's what he's doing. He's giving something that will never leave you, that will always be with you, that will guide you and guard you and protect you. You see, in the world in which we live, peace is defined in international terms as a period of cheating between two periods of fighting. That's what Ambrose Bierce wrote. The period of cheating before the period of fighting. And maybe for some of you, that's your life. It's a life where people are constantly doing what is wrong instead of what is right. And it leads to conflict and pain and hardship. Jesus is contrasting the peace of God with the peace that the world has to offer. And that's why he says, I'm giving you a specific kind of peace. And it's not like 
the world has to offer. The world will seek peace through alcohol and, and through drugs. There was a stupid show on, on television where a young man was getting bullied all the time at school. And, and so he goes to his wise uncle and he says, Uncle, what did you do to, to, to stay away from the bullies? He goes, I ran. And he says, what do you do to make the fear go away? And he says, I drink. But I want you to know I didn't start drinking till I was in the ninth grade. No, we laugh because that's exactly the case. Peace through alcohol, peace through drugs, a pharmaceutical solution to the problem and the agitation that's taking place in our heart. We want peace. And so we, we will try to pursue it through political activism, through environmentalism, through entertainment and escapism. You know, according to one survey, the average American watches TV four hours a day. One survey said, if you spread that out over a 70-year lifespan, that amounts to 12 years of your life spent in front of a television monitor. That's one-sixth of your life. How many of us can, with a clean conscience, say that we want to stand before Jesus Christ and say, yeah, I spent one-sixth of my life watching the tube or the flat screen, or the monitor. Satan suggests, why not run away from your problems? Why not numb your fear? Why not make the anxiety go away by filling your life with so many distractions that you don't have to think about it, and then Satan tells the ultimate lie. There's no hope for you. The Word of God is probably not true. And the parts that are true, well, it's hard to discern. People run from their fear and they run from their anxiety and they create a fantasy world and some decide to live in it. I was reading another survey. Do you realize that over 10 million people participate in, in a video game called the World of Warcraft or something like that? And it begins to occupy their mind. One lady complained that her husband comes home at 6 o'clock and at 6.30 he's in front of the of the computer monitor, and sometimes he plays the game till 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning. His wife doesn't matter. His children doesn't matter. The chores don't matter. What does the world have to offer? Will the treasure make the fear go away? Will pleasure make the fear go away? Will honor and fame make the fear go away? All that the world gives is temporary. It constitutes a temporary escape. And so here Jesus is saying, you have been extended things your whole life that were temporary, but I want to give you a permanent solution of peace and joy and security. The peace of God includes peace with God. It isn't something that's just external, but it extends to the very fabric of your being. It's more than feelings. It's more than a positive attitude. It's more than a tranquility of mind. 
It's the settled assurance that heaven is real. Hell is real. The Word of God is real. The Bible is real. Fellowship is real. Peace is real. Joy is real. Assurance is real. And the TV, the TV, the TV is not real. So, let me ask you a question. Why is it that you would want to occupy yourself with something that is not real? Jesus will later tell his disciples, these things I've spoken to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That's what he says in John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus is speaking of the kind of peace that settles the mind and strengthens the will and establishes the heart. There is a peace without anxiety. There is a peace without fear. But make no mistake about it. That peace doesn't come cheaply or freely. The peace comes through, the Bible says, the blood of His cross. That peace will cost Jesus His comfort his freedom, and his life. Peace on the battlefield often comes with a precious sacrifice. But on the battlefield of the human heart, it's the death of one man. The blood of the Lamb. The Son of Man. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we say peace comes through Jesus. And no wonder Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And remember, he's repeating what was begun in the opening verse of chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. And we've already asked and answered the question, why is their heart troubled? It's because Jesus has already told them, I'm going away. Someone's going to betray me. And they're agitated and they're afraid. A.W. Tozer wrote, To the pure in heart, nothing really bad can happen. Not death, but sin should be our greatest fear. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Well, Jesus, why shouldn't we be afraid? You've just told us that someone's going to betray that Peter's going to deny, that the whole world is going to fall apart in a few moments. I read this acronym, F-E-A-R, and underneath it it said, false evidence appearing real. That's what fear is. False evidence that appears real. It looks like my world is falling apart. 
It looks like things aren't going well. But let me share something with you. Fear is rarely a good counselor. Fear can sometimes be a good counselor when you're standing in front of a busy street and you're looking both ways into oncoming traffic and fear communicates something. Don't walk out into the street. Hey, listen to that voice. There's a healthy fear. But there's an unhealthy fear. And you know what the unhealthy fear is? God doesn't care. God doesn't know. God isn't aware of my circumstances. God does care. God does know. He is aware of your circumstances. Look at verse 28. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me. And look at that for those of you who are wondering, well, is Jesus using guilt in order to manipulate his disciples? No. If you loved me is an expression that seems to indicate that they don't. That their fear is what is guiding them. Their fear is what is controlling them. Their fear is what is directing them instead of the word of God. But Jesus says, if you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the father for my father is greater than I. Jesus gives the disciples a gentle rebuke for their failure to see things God's way. It's a broad picture. But almost all of life is divided into those categories. The ability to see things from God's perspective. Or your own. The ability to see things from God's point of view. Or your own. I, I heard someone once say that, that God doesn't really have a point of view. All he has is points to view. He sees everything and he sees everything clearly. Jesus says, my father is greater than I. I had a person call me on, on my radio program not too long ago and say, this is proof positive that Jesus isn't God. Read it for yourself. For my father is greater than I. I said, are you married? Yeah. Are you greater than your wife? He goes, is she listening right now? They're exactly the same in essence and in being. Just because your boss is your boss, he may be greater in the workplace, but he's not greater in reality. Does this prove that Jesus isn't God and that the doctrine of the Trinity is false? No, Jesus is God. Jesus has repeatedly asserted his deity and full equality with the Father. John chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. John chapter 8, verse 58. John chapter 10, verse 30. John chapter 14, verse 9. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So why would Jesus all of a sudden reverse himself and say, Oh, well, well maybe I'm not God. No, Jesus isn't denying his deity, and he's not denying equality with the Father. Just the opposite. Jesus is affirming his deity and his identity. So in what way is the Father greater than the Son? Well, as the Son of Man, Jesus is in submission and obedience to his Father. The Father sent him. 
with a mission. And he submits to the Father. He loves the Father. He obeys the Father. The Father is, is greater in rank, but not in essence or nature. Jesus in his earthly ministry acquires a second nature, a human nature. Jesus voluntarily lays aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes and then submits himself to the Father. In that sense, the Father is greater than the Son. And clearly the text doesn't prove the inferiority of Jesus, but rather that the mission of the Father is accomplished in the Son. Look carefully at what the verse is really saying. You have heard me remind you over and over and over again that I'm going back to my father. This is supposed to be a cause of kara. It's translated joy or ekerate, rejoicing. It's the same root Word And the point of the verse is to give the disciples a, a deep sense of confidence and assurance, which is supposed to fill their hearts with joy. Do you know what the difference between pleasure and joy is? Pleasure is something that happens to you. Joy is something that comes from within you and then extends to other people. Someone once described joy as peace dancing and peace as joy resting. So why are the disciples to rejoice? Look at the reason that Jesus gives. Jesus is returning to the Father. Now, by the way, this is a reference to Christ's imminent death. He is going to die on the cross. He is going to rise from the dead. He is going to ascend into heaven. Well, why in the world should the disciples rejoice over the death of Jesus? For the same reason we do. At the cross, you beckon me. Draw me gently to my knees because the cross, it's because of the cross of Jesus. It's the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus. It becomes the source of the forgiveness of sin. We're delivered by the sacrifice of Jesus. We're delivered from death and hell in the, in the hierarchy of, of fear. There are people who every day live their lives in complete fear that they're going to die. Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. That's what he said in John chapter 12, verse 32. Paul knew the truth about this particular passage. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul wrote, But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. What is Jesus saying? The death and resurrection of Jesus should cause people to shout, to rejoice. Why? Because we have hope. The greatness of the Father should cause people to rejoice. The Father has de demonstrated His love and His power by releasing Jesus. The death of Jesus will cause 
all men to be released from the power of the flesh. And remember what the flesh is. It's everything that we are apart from Jesus. I want to know God. You can't know God apart from Jesus. I want to be forgiven by God. You can't be forgiven apart from Jesus. I want to go to heaven. You can't go to heaven apart from Jesus. I want to experience peace. You can't experience peace apart from Jesus. I want real joy inside my heart. You can't have that apart from Jesus. I want security, assurance, confidence. You can't have that apart from Jesus. Jesus has defeated the devil. Jesus has defeated Satan and all of his oppression and attacks. The Father has released Jesus from the pressures of human beings. You've got to understand something. Jesus, as he's going to the cross, as he will die, and as he will rise from the dead, and as he will ascend to heaven, guess what? He will be placed in a position where he can never, never be hurt ever again. He can be ridiculed. He can be humiliated by people, but the Father will take the Son home. Jesus will return back where He came from, His rightful throne of glory, to the place of worship, the place of glory, exalting Him and giving Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, you know the rest, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. The Father has made it possible for us to overcome the world. And the Son has made it possible for us to overcome the devil. And the Holy Spirit has made it possible for us to walk in the Spirit. D.A. Carson, who I consider maybe one of the finest scholars alive on the earth today, captures the essence of this particular passage when he writes, if Jesus' disciples truly loved him, they'd be glad that he's returning to his father. For he is returning to the sphere where he belongs, to the glory he had with the Father before the world began, to the place where the Father is undiminished in his glory, unquestionably greater than the Son in the incarnate state. To this point, the disciples have responded emotionally, entirely, according to their perception of their own gain or loss. That's the key. Jesus, it's not in my best interest. But Jesus is saying something that maybe each and every one of us need to hear. Did it ever occur to you that there are some things that are in God's best interest? That that are in Christ's best interest? That are in the kingdom's best interest. He goes on and he writes, If they had loved Jesus, they would have perceived that his departure to his own home was his gain and rejoiced with him at that prospect. As it is, their grief is the index of their self-centeredness. Unquote. I want to pause for just a moment and I want to ask you that very hard question. Is it possible that your fear, that your anxiety, that your uncertainty 
isn't in God's best interest and it isn't in Jesus' best interest and it isn't in the kingdom's best interest but for whatever wicked reason you've decided to retain it because you think it's in your best interest to worry about the things that you're worried about. But to be afraid that, that you could lose your job and that you could lose your home. And when you hear the news that someone is suffering, there is a quiet uncertainty in your own heart as you thank God that it's not that it's them and not you. I want you to come to grips with something. That often our grief and our fear is the measure of our self-centeredness. And that sometimes we have to come to grips with something. We have to ask and answer a question. Is this in my best interest or is this in Jesus' best interest? Jesus asks, if you love me, you'll want what's best for me. And what is best for Jesus? Oddly enough, what turns out to be best for Jesus turns out to be best for you. You know what? It's in my best interest that I die and I go to be with the Father. But guess what? It's also in your best interest. Because you're going to experience forgiveness and you're going to experience peace and you're going to be experiencing joy and you're going to be experiencing security because all of those things that separated you from God disappear. So are you still struggling with unbelief? Are you still struggling with doubt? Is fear still the central portion of your life? Does the absence of peace in your life and the absence of joy in your life and the absence of security in your life bear burning testimony to the fact that there's something wrong in your life? Thomas Aquinas wrote, Man cannot live without joy. Therefore, when he is deprived of true spiritual joy, it becomes necessary that he become addicted to carnal pleasures. This is insightful. That is very insightful. Dostoevsky describes the formula for those who have lost joy. Quote, man is fond of counting his troubles, but he doesn't count his joy. If he counted them as he ought to, he would see that every lot has enough happiness provided for it. The idea being this. Joy is God's provision for you internally. And pleasure I'm not talking about every pleasure. I'm talking about the pleasure that you embrace in order to substitute joy. It's not wrong to eat a green burrito. It's not wrong to be entertained. It's not wrong to go out to the park. It's not wrong to experience pleasure. What becomes wrong is when you substitute an addictive behavior of pleasure for the reality of what it means to experience joy in Jesus. If that weren't enough, the Bible says, Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. 
Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the last Puritan, said, Christ is not only a remedy for your weariness and trouble, but he will give you an abundance of the contrary joy and delight. What happens when poverty is soaked in joy? Well, guess what? That means greed has no place in your life. If you have nothing but Jesus... If you have nothing but the knowledge that you've been saved and you've been forgiven and you're going to heaven, guess what? There's no room for greed. Helen Keller wrote, Join the great company of those who make the barren places of life fruitful with kindness. Carry a vision of heaven in your heart and you shall make your name, your college, your world correspond to that vision. Your success and happiness lie within you. External conditions are the accidents of life. It's outer wrappings. The great enduring realities are love and service. Joy is the holy fire that keeps our purpose warm and our intelligence aglow. Resolve to keep happy and your joy and you shall form an invincible host against difficulty. You might think, well, that's easy for Helen Keller to say. Are you seriously going to say that to me? Are you seriously going to say that to me? That a, a girl who lost her sight and her hearing through a deadly disease who purposes to live her life not getting things but giving things is somehow perverted? C.S. Lewis used to wonder if every pleasure were mere substitutes for joy. And I think that the answer may be when Jesus becomes your pleasure... And the Bible and eternal, eternal things become your pleasure. You can't quench joy. And look what Jesus says in verse 29. And now I've told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you can believe. Jesus reminds them and confirms to them in advance that the claims of Jesus can be proven and verified. By the way, everything that Jesus predicted, does it come to pass? I'm going away. Did he leave? Yeah, he died. Did he return? I'm coming back. Yes, he rose from the dead. Did Jesus go to his father? Yeah, he ascends into heaven. Does he send the Holy Spirit? Hello, Acts chapter 2. These things I've spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. That's what he says in John chapter 15, verse 11. By the way, according to the Bible, only God can predict the future in exact detail. There are people who can guess the future. Will the Rockies win? Hey, there's two chances they could win and they could lose. But in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 9, the Lord said, Behold, the former things have come to pass now. I declare new things before they spring forth. I proclaim them to you. Isaiah adds in verses 9 and 10, I am God. There's no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient things 
those things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. God knows the beginning of your life, the middle of your life, and the end of your life. Contrast that with the false idols and the false ideas and the false philosophies of fallen human beings. Jeremiah 15:16 says, "Your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts." Peace, joy. Look at verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. When Jesus says, look, I'll no longer talk much with you, it doesn't signal the end of the conversation. Because the conversation is going to extend all the way through chapter 15 and all the way through chapter 16. But it's a reminder to the disciples that the time is short. That Jesus is about to conclude his earthly ministry. By the way, if you knew that time was short and you were about to conclude your testimony, I suspect that there's some things that you would want to make sure were said. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is fully aware of all of the events, of all of the things that are going to unfold. He's never taken by surprise. He knew before the eleven knew that the enemy was coming and was about to seize him. I'm not going to talk much longer, for the ruler of this world is coming. In what way was the ruler of the world coming? Evil men, wicked men, along with Judas... We're coming to arrest Jesus. Jesus wanted to use people in one last ditch effort to destroy Jesus. By the way, this is the second reference of three references in, in John's gospel to Satan as the ruler of the world. The first reference is in chapter 12, verse 31. The last reference is in chapter 16, verse 11. But Satan isn't the legitimate ruler of this world. Satan is a divine permitted usurper. He may be the ruler of this world's evil system. He may be the ruler that stands in opposition to God and Jesus. He may stand in opposition and rebellion to the true and living God. But guess what? The clock is ticking for him. For those of you who have done yourself a favor and read the end of the book, Satan is going to wind up in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. The Son of Man and the Son of the Morning have been in constant conflict. The Savior versus Satan. When Jesus was a small infant, Satan prompted Herod to kill the innocent children in Bethlehem. When Jesus began his ministry, there was Satan to test him in the wilderness. Throughout his earthly ministry, Satan repeatedly incited evil people to try and destroy him. And you were never a threat. And you were never a problem. 
until the day you gave your heart to Jesus and your life to Christ. For some of you, you remember that day. It was the day that all hell broke loose. Because you became a threat. And you became a problem. And the moment that you became a threat and you became a problem to Satan, he marshals his resources to try to make your life miserable. In a few short hours... Satan will succeed in killing Jesus. But in killing Jesus, he seals his own destruction and our redemption. But note, Satan has nothing in Jesus. There's no foothold. This explains why Satan couldn't hold Jesus in death. The phrase, by the way, is a Hebrew idiom or expression. When he says, the ruler of the world is coming, he has nothing in me. Some of my, before I got saved friends, they would say to the cops, you got nothing on me. That's what this expression means. You got nothing on me. The idea being Satan has no foothold. Satan has nothing in Jesus. How is that possible? Well, he has no claim on Jesus. Jesus isn't of this world. Jesus has never sinned. Jesus never sinned. And if Jesus sinned, then death was his due and the devil would triumph. But there's nothing. There is no greed. There is no lust. There is no selfishness. There is no pride. There is no wickedness. There is no half-truth. There is no incomplete revelation. There's no secret sin that Satan can use to his advantage. What about you? What about you? Is there something Is there something that Satan can use to his advantage? Because you haven't confessed it. Because you haven't ditched it. Because you haven't gotten rid of it. Because the moment you confess it, the moment you ditch it, the moment you get rid of it, guess what? You become a candidate for peace and joy and assurance. And look what it says in verse 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Here's what he's saying. My Father sent me. I'm under orders from God the Father. To go. To die. And to come back to life. And in those three little English words that are found in verse 31 is the sum and the substance of your salvation. So I do arise. Let us go from here. The believer's security, the believer's assurance comes from two sources. And neither of those sources have anything to do with you. Your assurance comes from the fact that Jesus Christ's victory over Satan is complete. Your assurance comes 
from the fact that Jesus' obedience to his Father is complete. Peace. Joy. Security. Let me ask you a question. How are you doing in the peace department? How are you doing in the joy department? How are you doing in the security department? The ancient poet Epictetus said, While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, peace from grief, peace from envy. He cannot give peace of heart, for which man yearns more than ever for outward peace, unquote. The problem of fear and the problem of uncertainty is very, very old. But our security rests in Jesus. Our peace is in Jesus. Our joy is in Jesus. Our security is in Jesus. Michael Faraday, before he died, as he approached death, he said his last words. Speculations have I none. I'm resting on certainties. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I committed to him against that day. He was quoting 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. I know what I'm certain about. That peace comes from Jesus. That joy comes from Jesus. That security comes from Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person so upset. That person who's so filled with uncertainty and fear and anxiety pressure Lord I know that if we're going to experience peace we must accept the free gift if we're going to experience joy we must allow the wine of the Holy Spirit to be poured deep into our heart and if we want confidence and assurance that, Lord, our confidence and our assurance has to completely rest not in what this world has to offer and not with passing pleasures for a moment, but for joy, real joy, permanent joy. In Jesus' name.